students is don't be weird. It's uh, strange as that sounds, but just and we say that because they, they get in these situations, see a guy maybe stand in a corner with a clipboard, and they forget that at the end of the day they're just a human, um, you know, a guy or a gal talking to another guy or a gal, and they kind of freeze up and I don't know, forget how to be a, a normal person just having a conversation. Welcome to the 1CA Podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, John McElligot. We're joined today by Sean Acosta, Sergeant First Class of the U.S. Army. Sean is currently serving as a CA Civil Affairs Instructor at the U.S. Army John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center and School. Sergeant Acosta, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Sean, I want to talk about your, uh, your background and what, why you got interested in civil affairs. So you enlisted in the Army as a combat medic in 2006. You went through basic at Fort Benning, uh, AIT or advanced individual training at Fort Sam Houston in Texas, and then you worked for the Army from uh, 2007 to 2010, uh, including a deployment to Afghanistan, also to Haiti. Uh, those were in support of uh, Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan and then Operation Unified Response in Haiti. Tell us about your experiences in Afghanistan and Haiti you know, how did you leverage your experience as a combat medic? Also, let us know, was there any connection to civil affairs at that point? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, my initial deployment uh, that I had in the, or my first deployment, I should say, was Afghanistan for 15 months as a medic. That was primarily spent uh, rotating kind of five-month increments between Kandahar and Kabul and Bagram, uh, working in the, in the hospitals there mainly. Uh, I enjoyed being a medic, but I always felt like there was something more I could be doing uh, than sitting in a hospital atmosphere. I like treating patients. I like working with the local population when they would come in. Uh, but those those kind of were few and far between the episodes of that happening. And if you fast forward, I got back, I think around July 2010, or 2009 rather. And then uh, January 2010, I was back to Haiti uh, with that same unit. And I think that that deployment would really, really pique my interest in civil affairs. Would run into these guys at the U.S. Embassy, working with Department of State and other NGOs, uh, and see them out and about in, in uh, Port Au-Prince. I didn't know who they were or what they were doing at the time, but come to find out they were civil affairs guys, active duty out of Fort Bragg, and uh, talked a little bit with them about what they were doing. And uh, shortly after I got back, I decided that I was going to drop a civil affairs uh, packet and go to assessment selection. Initially, I wanted to continue with the medical field, and Sockham kind of, or the thought of, of being a Sockham medic kind of drew me in, but there were some other things in the pipeline. I was able to do a pilot program and complete my associate's degree that prolonged my stay in SWIC. So I kind of, towards the end of that, I kind of went the whole Sockham route and just decided it would be best to get back to a, get to a team and get back out the door. Tell us about, you mentioned Sockham. Can you explain for people what SACA means and how that's different from being a, a combat medic in a line unit for the Army. Yeah, absolutely. So currently, uh, active duty 95th Civil Affairs Brigade is the only uh, brigade that has SACA medics or special operations combat medics. They would go through a six-month course uh, along with C 
60th or do something else in Ranger Medics. They'll go through a six-month course there, and then that'll be followed on by Civil Affairs uh, Medical Sergeant course, which that's more focused on the CA aspect of what they may see on a CPA team. So not only will they treat the members of the team, uh, but they'll also be treating, uh, you know, potentially local animals if we're doing some type of med cap or vet cap, uh, rather, and some of the other things they may, may run into. But the differences, I would say, between a soccer medic and a normal Army medic is really the training and certification. Um, so in 68 Whiskey, straight out of AIT is an EMTB qualified, so an EMT basic qualified medic, whereas a soccer medic can go on later and, and test out for paramedic course. So they have skills in uh, advanced trauma, medicine, prolonged field care, all these different things that, that will help them work in these kind of austere environments that most civil affairs teams will find themselves in. Yeah, was that some of the stuff that you saw in Haiti um, for the civil affairs team? Did they talk about doing any kind of those uh, vet caps or med caps down there as well? So it was, uh, I didn't see any vet caps or med caps while I was there. It was largely um, an HABR mission, so it was a lot of humanitarian assistance uh, distribution um, and a lot of coordination with with just the Department of State guys and the local NGOs that were on, on the ground, ensuring that they were targeting resources and putting them and allocating them to the right to the right locations. So HAR, uh Humanitarian Assistance Disaster Response, and um, right. when you're talking to those guys, apparently they were very successful in, in helping to recruit you over. You'd mentioned you wanted to look for something different. Um, was it the interaction with different army units? Was it interaction with locals? What were the things that really spoke to you and wanted to drop that packet to apply for civil affairs? So, yeah, I think it was a combination of, of maybe all of those things. Um, I kind of I felt stagnant where I was. It felt, felt like I had kind of a peak looking around at the, the peers I had. They're not to say that they were bad people necessarily, but you look at uh, some of the guys on, on civil affairs or some of the other RSOP uh, or aspects of the RSOP community, generally those guys are assessed and selected because they're you know, intelligent, they're fit, they're uh, good team players and they're critical thinkers and they're able to adapt uh, because the U.S. Army and, and our nation asked them to do uh, some very interesting things in, in austere environments to kind of uh, assert our uh, U.S. strategic objectives in those areas. So looking at civil affairs, seeing some of the things they were doing and the opportunities they had, I felt like that was a community I wanted to be a part of. Uh, particularly because it's a four-man team, smaller asset. They were all, like I said, very, very capable individuals, very intelligent, from NCOs to officers. So I felt like that was a community that I want to be a part of. That's awesome. And, and so you dropped that packet to, to apply for civil affairs and go to the civil affairs qualification course, or CAQC. Tell us about that process. Was, how long did it take? Um, did you uh, get recycled at any point, having to go through any piece of that? Um, how difficult do you think it was, you know, for you and, and the other folks who were trying to go through at the same time? Once uh, I found out that I was uh, picked up through a packet, uh, and this was in 2010, so the process was a little bit different. It was before we, I think, selection and assessment was just coming on board at that point for active duty. So uh, it was a PCS move to Bragg. I was already here anyways, but so showed up at, at, at 3rd Battalion's Special Warfare Center School, uh, for a special warfare training group and uh, waited, went to selection. So 10-day selection was pretty, I was expecting more of a, I guess, uh, more physically based selection. I think most people think of SFAS or Special Forces Assessment Selection where it's pretty grueling 21 days. 
not to say that they didn't test you physically, but on top of the physical aspects of it, there was a lot of mental, um, I guess they were trying to validate or see where you were mentally and how you could operate it under a pretty pressured situations with minimal sleep and you're tired. Uh, so a lot more cognitive testing of your cognitive abilities. Um, but once assessment selection was over, still very similar to what we have now in third battalion, uh, phase one, which is kind of your introduction to civil affairs and the history, um, the different aspects of it. Uh, and then you would go on to language after that. And language is a six month uh, language course, a shorter version of what they would have at BLI. You're expected to at least score a 1-1 one, one on the oral proficiency interview or the OPI, um, but typically you want to be at a 1-plus or 1-plus uh, once you graduate. And those those languages are, are given to you by HRC, and that's basically the needs of what the regimental will need at that time. Uh, following language, you'll come to MOS, or the Civil Affairs Qualification Course. When I went through in 2010, we had officers and NCOs in the same classrooms being instructed the same material. However, uh, I would say, I think it's within the past couple of years, I don't have an exact date on it, they've actually split that pipeline. Uh, so now we actually have a, a captain's uh, course, or the officer's course, and the um, civil affairs specialist course. They do come together at some point, but, but I think that it was better this way and it helped to kind of focus what we were teaching the officers and the NCOs, because obviously their roles are going to be different once you get to a civil affairs team. So I think that was... That was a good uh, that was a good split and a good choice by component in third battalion uh, to do that. But following civil affairs qualification course, you'll end that and you'll go into plus tiller, which is a three week exercise. It's kind of culminating exercise uh, out of Camel Call. Very stressful environment for the students. It was stressful for me going through the times. Most realistic training I've done in, in the U.S. military. But they they, they definitely definitely test the skills that they've taught you over those uh, two and a half three months prior to put you in a, in a real environment, feels like an operational deployment, working partner forces uh, as well as NGOs uh, to kind of go in and assess these civil vulnerabilities that are in those areas and see if you can, uh, if you pay attention enough to kind of match up what capabilities you have to meet those grievances and ensure that there's stability in that, that area. And following that, just graduation and then you're, you're put on a team. And so for that, did that uh, was that pipeline about a year, year and a half? Uh, typically it's about a year. Uh, the officers now, have their own career course, Captain's Career Course at at Fort Brook or RSOP, Captain's Career Course. Uh, so for the officers, it's probably about a year and a half. Enlisted, it's about a year. Interesting to hear that HRC chooses the language for you. Uh, did you have a language background already? Uh, no, I didn't actually. So my by ethnicity, uh, my father's Mexican. I grew up kind of understanding a little bit of Spanish, so I was actually coming through the pipeline, I was hoping that I could get Spanish to the top of my list. Uh, and what I ended up with, Persian Dari, was at the bottom. I think it was around <laughs> 13 or 14 languages. So I'm not sure my wish list was really really seen or, or heard by whoever it was choosing languages. <laughs> and how is your Persian Dari now? Uh, surprisingly, so I will say that language is probably one of the most difficult things to keep up on your own uh, on a team. We do get an opportunity to do a refresher once a year, like a 30-day refresher. Uh, so currently my DAR is at 1+, plus, 1+. Plus. I've been able to keep it at that level. I was, I've actually dropped a little bit. I was at a 2-2. But I'd say active duty side, being able to maintain your language is pretty difficult with the operational tempo. Yeah, it's, it's tough for, uh, 
if you have a background language, then you can carry that forward on the reserve side. Um, I just happen to speak some French and, and a little bit of another language the Army doesn't really care about. But, uh, you know, it's, yeah, it's the same thing. You just have to carve out time in the evenings or weekends. But once you qualify at any minimal language, even if you take a test and you score zero zero, it shows that you're interested in learning the language. And you can get, I think, some funding through the Total, total Army Language Program and become trained in whatever that is. And so if you're a 38 series, 38 Bravo, 38 Alpha, uh, they'll put some more money into sending you to learn that language, which may or may not be aligned with the, your unit and, you know, it's regionally aligned. So uh, my unit is aligned with Central Command. It's in the Army's interest to send me to learn Persian Dari or Arabic or something else. Um, but since I already speak some French, they could send me to speak and learn uh, more French. Sean, I wanted to ask you about after going through the CAQC, uh, you were then assigned to Alpha Company 81st CA Battalion, which is, uh, was that under, can you tell us about the, the task organization on the active duty side and what was, I think, the 85th Brigade now has been downsized uh, and the 95th Brigade. How are they organized now with battalions? Yeah, so they can talk about that. Um... When I graduated, like you said, I went to the 81st Civil Affairs Battalion. Um, the 81st was aligned under the 85th Civil Affairs Brigade, and both of those were at Fort Hood. The 81st was a South Commonwealth Battalion, put up in 2011, I believe is when they were they were flagged, to support Force Com. As an active duty Civil Affairs Brigade, the, I think the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and the, the emphasis that was put on counterinsurgency operations at the time, Kind of brought to light the how important civil affairs were during those operations. So, Department Army said, "Hey, we need a we need an active duty civil affairs brigade that can support force communities, not just soft." So, the 85th stood up. Uh, and under the 85th, you had the 81st, which was Southcom aligned um, at Fort Hood. You had the 80th, which was at Fort Bliss, and that supported UCOM. The 84th was at Fort Lewis, uh, supported. You had the 80th frag, uh, which is actually the only remaining battalion from that brigade that's still up. And they originally supported CENTCOM, although now that the brigade has the headquarters is shut down, they are they have regionally aligned companies, uh, and each of those companies support ForceCom. Uh, but following the 83rd, you had 82nd down in Savannah um, that supported AFRICOM. Okay. And so you were there at the, the 81st CA Battalion, and then at some point you were tagged to go support Enduring Freedom, um, and then you served as a CANCO uh, going on uh, in support of operations that were in, uh, how do you pronounce the, the district, Panjwai? Yes, uh, Panjwai. Panjwai District, okay, Kandahar yeah. Province. Okay. Yeah, you know, for um, what you're allowed to share, can you talk to us about what you did as a CANCO on that team? Yeah, so we supported uh, 4th Brigade of 2nd Infantry Division. Uh, uh, they were the battle space centers that specifically supported the 38. Alpha Company itself deployed and aligned under 4th Fourth Brigade. Uh, each cast supported a different battle space center, a different battalion. Uh, my team was in Panguay District and we supported 138. Uh, that was 2000, 2012, late 2012 uh, through mid 2013. 
still some kinetic ops going on. I would say Pan's Way was still very kinetic, actually. Um, and really what we were doing was trying to support uh, not only Jeroa, but some of the Afghan local police officials they had there, as well as um, some of the local governance at the district headquarters, and just trying to ensure that those basic governance fu- functions um, that were supposed to be put into those rural villages and surrounding areas were there uh, to try to prevent that that power vacuum from being taken advantage of by the Taliban that was operating in the area. How did it go? Uh, if you're going to grade yourself and your team, how did you guys do? So luckily I had a, a very I had a very smart uh, team leader, Captain John Ciesco at the time, now Major John Ciesco, actually in the reserves now. Uh, very intelligent guy. He uh, understood civil affairs way more than I did at that point. Um, I, it was a very eye-opening uh, deployment for me. I learned a lot. Grade-wise, I'd probably give us a B plus. A, I think there's some things looking back on it. I think everybody feels this way about every deployment. Maybe some things you, you feel you could have done differently or done better. Um, but overall, I think we were doing the right things and going in the right direction. So That's wonderful. Well, thanks for going there. Uh, Sean, after you got back, you were reassigned. You went to uh, HHC for the 85th CA Battalion, uh, serving as an assistant operations sergeant in the S3 shop. How was that like, going from... Uh, CANCO to, to work in the S3 shop? So, I'll just be completely honest, I think it's every NCO's worst nightmare <laughs> to the uh, staff position. Maybe officers too. I think they feel the same way. Uh, I say that jokingly, but in all honesty, I worked under uh, some very impressive officers uh, that battalion. Um, actually, the Civil Affairs Commandant, uh, Colonel uh, Burnett was our battalion commander at the time, and then Sergeant Major Garrett Banfield was our battalion command sergeant major. Uh, both of them getting ready to take over the 95th Civil Affairs Brigade here in say, the next three or four months. But, but serving under them were great. The S3 himself, Major uh, Shane Salyer, very intelligent guy. Uh, and, I, and I'd say this as, a, as an NCO, wasn't really looking forward to it, but I'd say that the 20 months, 20 ish months I was there, were extremely eye-opening. It set me up for success, I think, as a team sergeant. You understand the operations process, MDMP, uh, understand how the functions of a staff are supposed to go, how they're supposed to support the companies, et cetera. Uh, um, but, uh, yeah, I think that staff time, while nobody really wants to do it, is, is invaluable. And, I, and I'd say I go back to a staff now at, at any point in my career later on because um, I understand how important it is and how really if it's done right, how, how much you are supporting and those cats and those companies uh, ensuring that they're able to get out the door and, and conduct their missions. It's really important for people to get that experience. I totally agree. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. One CA is under the umbrella of the Civil Affairs Association, a 501c19 veterans organization. People can support the podcast through tax-deductible donations. Money raised will be used to send junior NCOs and officers to two events hosted by the CA Association. The first is a symposium held each fall. The second is a roundtable and workshop held in the spring. Each junior NCO and officer selected will also receive a membership to the CA Association. If you'd like to support the podcast, then please visit the CA Association website at civilaffairsassoc.org. That's civilaffairsassoc.org. And please remember that all donations are tax deductible. Thanks for your support. 
Hi, welcome back to the 1CA podcast. So then from there, Sean, you went to the 83rd CA Battalion, and that you got your chance to be a team sergeant in Delta Company. Uh, this was supporting the 82nd Airborne Division's Global Response Force. Um, and with a part of that, uh, actually, you, you went over from Delta Company to, to Bravo Company and deployed to Cameroon. This was in support of Operation Juniper Shield. What was it like going over to support the 82nd? And um, let's go from that into a discussion about Cameroon. The 15 months that I spent supporting the GRF mission, 82nd GRF mission, I think initially everyone kind of, I wouldn't say they're depressed, but everybody wants to kind of get out the door. Everyone is always looking for the next mission. When am I deploying again? In GRF, it's like, unless something really bad happens, I'm, I'm going to be sitting here going through you know, GRTC missions fighting Atropia or Anatropia. So, but I'll say that again, usually it's the things that you initially don't want to do, you learn the most from. And I'd say that my, that being my first uh, or initial experience as a team sergeant um, helped me kind of grow into that role and understand more importantly what I was doing, get back to the basics kind of ensuring that team's equipment is taken care of, you know, guys are doing their professional development they're supposed to do, that I'm constantly have my team in a ready state, ready to deploy at a moment's notice because it's a, you know, 24 hour recall or not 24 hour recalls, sorry, two hour recall, uh, with 96 hours out the door. Um, so it was a, a trying time that sometimes it's frustrating getting spun up over some things and you come sit in the company for a while thinking you may be going somewhere and getting all your team ready. But I'd say overall, it kind of taught me and kind of instilled and, and, and drove Back, drove me back to making sure that I was doing those basics properly as a team sergeant, uh, which I think is important. I think with the operational tempo that we have in civil affairs, both on, on the reserve side and in the active duty side, that sometimes that stuff gets forgotten. Uh, we, for, we forget or uh, just kind of just the pace of, of life itself and work, we overlook some of those things. So taking that moment to pause and kind of get back to the basics, I think was good and kind of helped me grow as, a, as an NCO. That's good to hear. And so you you prepared these folks for the opportunity uh, if the balloon went up to respond. Uh, and then there was a deployment that came up in Cameroon. So was that something you uh, you may have sought out, or that somebody tapped you on the shoulder and said, "Hey, you know, you want this chance? Uh, go to Cameroon and support Juniper Shield." Uh, it was a combination of both. I don't. So I, I don't think. Uh think you're doing your job properly as an MCO in, in civil affairs if you're not kind of whispering in the first sergeant's ear and the sergeant major's ear, like, hey, if something comes up, I'm your guy, you know? Uh, but, yeah, it was an opportunity that came to me, although I had been kind of saying that off and on. Um, but it was an opportunity that came to me uh, from the sergeant major and actually from our, our S3 at the time, Major Clay Daniels, saying, hey, we've got this opportunity to go to Cameroon. You're the guy. We want to send you there. Um, so it was kind of a shorter notice, I would say. They needed a new team sergeant to fill a position. About 90 days later, we were out the door um, after a very quick rapid PMT cycle and out the door to Cameroon to go uh, fulfill this boss side mission there. Wow. So your experience in deployments before had been Afghanistan, Haiti, and then Cameroon. Quite different. How, how did the mission differ from where you had been before and what you had been training for? Uh, when you hit the ground in Cameroon, was it completely different from uh, the, the plan that you had before you arrived? So I, I thought it was going to be initially when they said Cameroon. I, you know, my initial thoughts were this is going to be a much different operational environment. 
Uh, and it was. Um, but I guess I'm thinking more of where you're living, et cetera. But when you show up and you see a, an Alaska tent staring at you in the face, and you look at the Hesco barriers again, you're like, man, I'm right back here in Africa, I'm looking at the same things. But the mission itself was completely different than anything I had done to that point. It was a very eye-opening mission. I'd say that during those seven months in Cameroon, that's probably, I feel like I've, my knowledge of civil affairs, uh, both doctrinally and, and then on-the-ground experience, kind of grew uh, and brought me to kind of where I am today. But, yeah, I, I think Cameroon, the operational environment itself, uh, where we were, we were in the in the north region. Obviously, a lot of the fighting that was going on uh, with the uh, Cameroonian military and the VEO Pokemon operating area was further north than where we were. So, our ability to impact operations was limited. And to be quite honest, that wasn't our mission there. But what we did find was, regardless of the distance from the fight, there's always something there in that region that there's always civil vulnerabilities. And if you do go through the, uh, you know, the CM methodology and go through your your approach to operational design properly, and you look at all these things and do your analysis, there's still a lot of, of vulnerabilities that are, are within that area that, that are, are there destabilizing uh, the region and things that you can still attack. And for us, uh, one of those things that we found was the youth population within Cameroon itself was a, I guess you can look at it as not necessarily our center of gravity, but uh, a, a capability that was being exploited by by the VEO in the area of uh, and It was something that we felt like we could assist with. So um, you look at all of these, these youth in, in Cameroon that were being recruited, um, et cetera, um, and we kind of looked at the root causes of what was going on. Why are these, why, what makes these individuals want to go do this? Or, is it just by sheer force, or is it something else that's going on there within within social norms or uh, social patterns within that country? Uh, so as we kind of went through our civil reconnaissance and civil engagement with the, the leaders in the area and the local population, we discovered that there was a, there was a few things. Uh, one, the the lack of national identification cards among the local population was causing issues. Uh, it was very difficult for the partner force, for the Cameroonian uh, security forces, that is, uh, to identify who was a threat and who was not. So you had potentially innocent Cameroonians just going about their normal day life that were being arrested and then you know thrown into prison uh, with Pokemon members and, and potentially being radicalized in there. And then furthermore, you had a, a lack of education, educational progression after secondary school because birth certificates were were needed in order to do that and birth certificates were needed to get a national identification card so that was one of the things we felt like we could we could really affect um, a lot of the rural population didn't have them just because the social norm there was that it wasn't really needed to go about your daily life in agrarian society so trying to educate the population on how important it was to get your children certificates um, and then work with the regional governor and local mayors in those areas to distribute those to the population was a was our focus for about the last three months and we did that by partnering like I said with local government uh, as well as Spirit of America assisted us with some some projects that the local government needed in order to get that going um, and we worked with uh, GIZ which is a German 
uh, organization. I couldn't tell you what the acronym. I mean, I know what it stands for, but I don't speak German, so I'm not going to put you that. Uh, it's like the German uh, USAID. Yes, exactly. They're, they're equivalent to the German USAID. But yeah, working with those organizations, uh, we were to kind of approach it from that angle and try to attack that, that critical capability and that vulnerability uh, utilizing our assistance. Yeah, it's it, it's a sh tough nut to uh, to crack, Sean. I think when I was a I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Cote d'Ivoire, West Africa, and then transferred to Madagascar, and especially in uh, West Africa, in, in Cote d'Ivoire, and some other countries nearby, you get the same issues that you saw in Cameroon. And sometimes for the students, it was in their interest not to have those IDs so that they could forge them or update them and stay in school, or plan a soccer team, or get access to services that they otherwise would have aged out of. But you're right, that's the next wave, uh, the violent extremist groups, organizations hitting West Africa and the sub-Saharan whole region. Uh, yeah, we're seeing that in the news reports coming out pretty often now. Well, you mentioned something there about your experience in Cameroon building on what you'd learned previously in leading up to the role that you have now, which is as a civil affairs instructor at the Special Warfare Center in School, or what we call SWIC. Tell us about what you're doing as an instructor. Is this uh, as a part of the CAQC or some other course that's happening? So I've uh, been at, at uh, 3rd Battalion, 1st uh, Special Warfare Training Group at, at SWIC uh, for only about 60 days now. However, I've kind of been in and out, I'd say, over the past four months, kind of getting to know how, how things run there. But uh, I'm currently assigned to Bravo Company, which is the company that runs the Civil Affairs Qualification Course, or the MOS space, uh, as an instructor for the uh, enlisted uh, or the Civil Affairs Specialist course. Although, kind of flow back and forth between the O's and, and enlisted as needed. Uh, but essentially, uh, essentially, what we're doing in that course is teaching them the the core task, or what's no longer the core task, moving more towards core competencies in the, in the new doctrinal uh, terms that they're using in the draft 3-57. Teaching them basic negotiation skills, mediation skills, how to conduct civil engagements, uh, how to go through that the CA methodology and the operational design to identify where those vulnerabilities, the civil vulnerabilities are within a society and what's causing you know these cycles of violence, if you will, uh, what's, how, how do we utilize our knowledge and utilize uh, unified action partners to kind of attack those from a, a defense perspective using the, the whole governance approach with diplomacy, defense, and, and uh, development. And then some other things as well have been implemented recently, some special warfare things as far as what's civil affairs role in unconventional warfare and, uh, and, and going forward with that. Is it the challenge that you thought it was going to be? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is, it's been a humbling experience coming over to, to Bravo Company. Um, one, I'll say that's because no matter what you think you know about doctrine, until you like really get into it, you start sitting in and going back through it all. It's, like, man, I've, I've actually forgotten a lot of this. Or I wish I would have remembered this eight months ago when I was sitting in camera. Um, that and just the... So when, when people say that they, the guys at, at SWIC are the face of the, I don't want to say the face of the regiment, but the guys that are there working when I got there are the top you know, enlisted officers, or some of the top enlisted uh, and officers 
uh, within the regiment. So it's been a humbling experience for me, um, kind of coming from a company where you feel like you're one of the, the top dogs there running around, and then you get here, and now, to be honest with you, I feel like I'm at the bottom of the totem pole running around with some of these guys. Uh, just the knowledge they have and the experience they have is it's a little overwhelming at times, uh, but it's good because every day I'm learning something from them. I learn something every day from the students, and then the you know the senior leadership within the battalion and the company are, are great as well. Sean, what are some tips that you would have for the enlisted guys through going through your course? For example, like when I was going through the the schoolhouse, they really did uh, foot stomp. You know, you need to read the the stuff that we tell you to read. You need to come to class prepared. Of course, maintain yourself physically, be in shape so that you can handle whatever we throw at you in the field. But uh, if you come unprepared, you know, you're not going to have a good conversation with your fellow students. Instructors will pick up on that. They'll know and, um, and you'll be behind. But is it reading stuff? Is it uh, you know, the competencies you're talking about, the, the transition from core tasks to competencies? Are people repeatedly failing at one of those or not knowing negotiation skills? What are some failure points and tips for people? So I'll say in most other Army schools you go to, just being able to memorize things that are given to you during a, a class will get you by the test, right? So the instructor tells you one thing, I memorize this definition or whatever verbatim, and good to go. Uh, it's not the case here. Uh, like I was saying initially, you know, civil affairs requires guys who we need critical thinkers. Uh, we need people that are adaptable, and, uh, and we test all those things. Um, so when you're looking at, I'd say the, the biggest thing is when I'm looking at something as a student, right, I need to understand what it is, but more importantly, the why behind it. Why are we doing this? Why is this important? And then how does all of this that I'm learning in a class link back to a strategic objective at some point, right? So civil affairs, we execute all these tactical tasks on the ground through civil engagement, civil reconnaissance. But at some point, we've made this operational approach to, to what we're doing within the country, and this operational approach always links back to some strategic objective or some line of effort that the geographic combat commander has. Uh, we're trying to progress U.S. objectives in that country. So the students on the enlisted side, I think, have a difficult time initially is in understanding. And I think the perception sometimes of CA is that we're just there to give out whatever it is at that point, school supplies, whatever it is, but there's always a why behind why whatever program or project we're implementing. So getting them to understand that is, is kind of difficult and challenging at times. And then I would say probably most difficult for both the officer and the enlisted coming through civil affairs qualification is our civil engagement module, uh, which is where we kind of go in and we teach them about negotiation tactics. Uh, we teach them about mediation tactics, and then, you know, conflict management, all these different things. And then we test them on these in some very intense situations at times, uh, and then not so intense at others. I put them in a bunch of different situations. So those, that module, I would say, is, it gets the most people and causes the most recycles within civil affairs qualification course. We kind of have a, a motto with the students is, don't be weird. It's uh, strange as that sounds, but just... And we say that because they get, they get in these situations, see a guy, maybe stand in the corner with a clipboard, and they forget that at the end of the day they're just a human 
uh, you know, a guy or a gal talking to another guy or a gal, and they kind of freeze up and, I don't know, forget how to be a, a normal person just having a conversation. Those things, I think, are the most difficult for people to get past with that civil affairs uh, or qualification course. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I saw the same thing. Don't be weird. Yeah, don't be weird. <laughs> kind of looking back on it, whether it was active duty or reserve, um, at the end of the course, you, you could have, like in retrospect, tried to predict the people you can't just have a normal conversation with and think, wow, okay, maybe there were some signs early on could have picked up on, yeah, they were going to have some trouble in this area. But you really don't know until the end. There were also some people I thought weren't going to make it and did. Made it through physically and made it through the aspects of being challenged like that. And you don't know until you're actually put under the stress how you're going to react. Uh, it's tough to predict that with some people. Yeah, it is. And, uh, you know, as instructors, one thing I've realized over the past 60 days is you can, you can, you can usually tell who, within the first two to three weeks, who, who's going to have issues during the civil engagement module, uh, just getting through the course, just by the way they interact with their peers and interact with cadre. And what we, we tend to do is when we see that, we'll kind of help coach them along, right? Like as just in normal day-to-day interactions, we'll kind of focus on that person and, and help get them maybe to a point where they'll need to be. But at, at the end of the day, there's some people that are going to make it and, uh, some people that won't. So at the end of the day, we, we owe it to the regiment to put the, the right people in and uh, ensure that we're trying to coach those along that, that need it uh, and get them to a point where they can get into the regiment. But uh, unfortunately, some of them just don't ever get there. Yeah. Sean, I want to close this up by asking about a resource that you go to for current events or a book you're reading now something that, you, that you're doing outside of your day job to help to connect you with the larger world, which may or may not inform what you're doing for civil affairs, but if it does, great. You know, share with us something you're reading or, or, or a resource that you go to that others may find helpful for them as well. Yeah. Um, the biggest thing I've been reading over the past, and I can't recall the name of the book right now. I was just reading it today. Uh, but it's on actor or network theory. Uh, I think it applies pretty heavily to what we do as civil affairs, um, and there's there's tons of resources on this, both online, uh, thesis written about it, as well as different different books you can explore over. But I'd say actor network theory kind of defines a lot of how this environment that we that we work in, the human domain, uh, how there's all these different aspects of it, and how they all affect one another. Um, so I, w- I would encourage people to read up on that. It's pretty pretty interesting. It's been kind of eye opening. And then generally, as far as uh, as news goes, I, I'd say just kind of pay attention to current events using different a plethora of different uh, media sources. I don't usually stick to one. Uh, I think it does a couple different things. It keeps the information I'm getting, although it's biased depending on what source you get, or to some extent it may be. But if I read them for all want to do that and kind of try to keep an objective opinion on, on the media and the news that's coming into you. Sergeant Sean Acosta, thank you very much for being here. Thanks for being on the 1CA podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for spending some time with us. 
please subscribe and come back for another installment of 1CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory.